Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. This is our ninth quarter on this podcast, which means we've now been going for more than two years, which is very exciting. And for those of you that have hung around, uh, then uh, great, wonderful. Uh, We're glad that we've been able to share some useful ideas. Those of you who have uh, recently listening to the podcast, there's lots of previous episodes. And in point of fact, uh, this particular quarter topic on Genesis... um, is one that we've discussed a fair bit in previous episodes. We've, we've dived into the book of Genesis as uh, a, a, to find stories that illustrate points we've been making all across the last two years. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the features of a good Genesis story, a good story of beginnings, is that it becomes a sort of a, a touch point, a reference point. So uh, at times we might refer over the next 13 weeks to, to one or more of our past episodes. And if it's been two years since you listened to it, you might find it useful to listen to it again. We certainly are going to go diving back through and listen to some of our own uh, recordings for that reason. Uh, very glad that you've chosen to join us. We've got a fun discussion ahead of us. My name's Cameron. Yeah, g'day. I'm Ken. And I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan. And I'll admit I'm just a little apprehensive that we may fall into the trap of repeating our favourite anecdotes on this topic that we may have shared in previous episodes. Yeah, well, we can keep ourselves accountable. I was in the middle of sharing an anecdote just before we started recording, and uh, as I launched on the anecdote, a small power failure came through, just just a glitch in the power system, uh, which I will take as divine signal that that anecdote's not needed. (laughs) Um, And for which reason, the notes I had on my screen are not there. I'm sorry if people have heard noise of me frantically typing and moving my, my mouse. Because I've just realised that the things I had set up are not there anymore. So I'm loading them up again. They caught us on Genesis. Now, um, Genesis has the possibility to raise some contentious topics. And we were thinking that we don't have, we don't feed on conflict. And there's no reason to, to hunt down conflict preferentially. Uh, nor do we feel inclined to avoid it. So we're, we're going to... Record this and see how it goes. Uh, <laughs> I had a problem with the first two sentences of the lesson. Uh, one of them is silly and pedantic, and one of them I think is serious. So uh, the first two sentences are these. Uh, the book of Genesis, and hence the whole Bible, begins with God's act of creation. This fact is very important because it means that our creation marks the beginning of human and biblical history. Uh, did you know, Ken, that the creation of humans marked the beginning of human history? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I hadn't thought about it, but I can uh, see the logical uh, truth of I, it. I do not disagree with it. Um, <clears throat> saying it marks the beginning of biblical history, um, biblical history is a really quaint idea. Uh, why? When we get to the story of the Exodus, it doesn't name the Pharaoh who's involved. It gives names to the two midwives who were secretly hiding and saving the lives of Jewish boys. Hmm. Uh, It's obvious that the book was not written as a history. And we know this explicitly because in places like in um, Chronicles and Kings, it will say for everything else that the king did, go see the, the historical records. You know, that's repeated at the end of every king. So, you know, in other words, there's a bunch of the stuff that happened we're not attempting to write a history, an exhaustive account of all the essential details as they developed. Uh, these are stories which are intended 
for religious um, encouragement for to help us in some way. They, they have, there's a functional element. You find that in the New yeah. Testament too. Is it the Gospel of John that ends with the same sort of sentiment? Many more things were done and happened, um, but I'm not writing them all down. I've, I've included a set to make some points. Mm. So if you're trying to make some points and your points are very, very valid points, uh, is it necessary to stick to historical facts? And uh, Christ didn't think so. He, he extemporized on uh, some uh, parables, the historicity of which we very much doubt, such as the rich man and Lazarus. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, But it is obviously there is a benefit to having something historical. And I, I thought we'd just start with the question before I get to the second sentence. Um, how important is, if you're trying to think of a story that's going to be functionally useful in someone's life, you're going to tell them this story not so they can say, oh, cool, is that what happened? But so that they can actually, like, change the way they live. How important is it that the story happened? Well, my mind immediately went to the sorts of stories we tell children. Um, I am trying to recall when my kids were a bit younger. I have a very vivid recollection of the first time I read Winnie the Pooh stories to my son, thinking he was much too young and wouldn't understand them, especially because they're not... They're not written in short childhood contemporary English. That they're they're an older book, in many ways. I think written more for the for the pleasure of adults, and they've only become known as children's stories almost kind of by accident. But that's my own hypothesis. Well, I have a different hypothesis. I have to jump in. Look, I I hypothesize that they're an old-fashioned sort of children's book that doesn't assume children are idiots. Yes. Go on. <laughs> I think that could, that could also... You need to be talked to in short <laughs> words. And that also somehow make the simultaneous assumption that um, nobody can learn a new word by being exposed to new words. Mm, mm. Well, on that note, Locke, on that note, I remember Tanner getting into the giggles over Eeyore. Yeah. Because Eeyore is, taken at face value, you would say, oh, poor Eeyore. You know, um, he's so miserable all the time. What could we do to help? But it's so cleverly written. It's really obvious that Eeyore is trying to elicit that response. He's yeah. he's very much working the crowd, <laughs> and and being sort of you know it's the, it's the I don't mind suffering in silence as long as everyone knows I'm suffering in silence mm. uh, sort of attitude. Um, and Tanner just loves that. He thinks it's so hilarious. And I he used it. it it was no good as a bedtime story for him because it would rev him up. Well, here's the point. What are we learning from Winnie the Pooh? Isn't it just harmless entertainment? Well, actually, I'm sure you have also had this experience. I've definitely been part of conversations where someone, we've been chatting, oh, so-and-so, they're a bit of an Eeyore, right? There's something profound being communicated about the different kinds of people there are and the different kinds of way that people interact. Um, my wife and I often often laugh as we listen to it and she self-identifies as a piglet who jumps in fright and then so as not to appear frightened, jumped once or twice more in an exercising kind of way. Piglet is a jumpy sort of character, um, a little bit inclined to, to be slightly and overly alarmed by normal sorts of things and and needs to sort of calm down on occasion. Then there's the Tigger, the person who is the rambunctious, bouncy life of the party. What's, re- what's remarkable, though, is that in a very limited cast of entirely fictional, speaking soft toy characters, a fairly succinct rundown of the kinds of human interactions you're going to have is presented. 
And that's remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable that you can equip someone, a young person or an old person, so powerfully for human interactions. And and getting getting back to Luke's comment about not speaking like children are idiots, um, not treating them like they can't read a room. And I'm sure, Ken, in some of the more difficult and upsetting cases you've had with children are in very difficult homes, um, that the children understand a lot more of what's going on than the adults think they do. Hmm. Um, and and this is that what's happening in Winnie the Pooh is a subplay. It's not in the words or in the plot. Mm. It's there's there's underneath there's agendas going on. Owl is known to be clever. He never does a single clever thing in all of the books, but he's just known to be clever, <laughs> and he works to maintain that that reputation. Yeah. Um, I got to go read and Winnie the Pooh again. It's really good. Yeah, it's good. C.S. Lewis makes the same point, Locke, and he he appeals to Wind in the Willows. Ah. As an example, where there's where there's a nice library of different personalities, mm. and the joy of the story is in the interplay between those personalities, and and um, again, you know, a character like Mister Toad um, is so distinctive. <laughs> that's that's so distinctive. Or Mister Badger, the the grumpy old. I think I think of Mister um, Spark from school, the librarian, who every student under the age of fourteen was terrified of, and every student, you know, in year eleven or twelve, absolutely loved. And they called him the teddy bear, but he was sort of really gruff. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Locke, uh, that when we teach our kids stories that we hope to be useful to them, uh, we don't limit ourselves to, to historical stories. Jesus didn't limit himself to historical stories. Uh, I don't think anybody would suggest that every one of the parables uh, had a, uh, you know, a, a one-to-one correspondence mm. with events that occurred in an individual person's life. He's not referring to a widow of this particular name who lost. It's not just that they may not be tied to a historical figure. It's that he didn't feel it important to clarify at the start, or that at least the people who recorded the Gospels didn't feel it was important. So it doesn't say, there once was a man named Lazarus who was poor and a rich... Oh, by the way, this didn't actually happen. But... Um, right. Yeah, there's there's no sort of disclaimer at the front of it. Oh, this this is one that actually happened, guys. It does not matter if any of the parables actually happen. The purpose and the meaning is is the same. Yeah. True enough. There nonetheless has to be a correspondence with human experience. Um, so, so there needs to be that correspondence for it to be of any useful purpose. Which, which um, is to, to say they have to be good stories... And mm. I mean good stories as in stories like Winnie the Pooh that um, speak fundamental truths mm. yeah. if, uh, about people and about relationships and about existence. Yeah. There, there are some times where the historicity matters, and that's in dinner-side sort of anecdotes. Um, you know, the other day I, I was down the road and I did this and I got a flat tyre, and then what do you know? On the way, I got a second flat tire, and everyone says, "Ah!" Oh. And then if you said, "Oh, by the way, that didn't actually happen," be like, "Well, why did you waste your why did you waste your time? It only has value because it happened." Yeah. Um, I was late today because there was story. a massive accident on the freeway, and a car burst into flames, and six trucks yeah. piled up. And by the way, that it didn't actually yeah. happen. See, I'm I'm yeah. going to throw a spanner in the works there. Sometimes, sometimes I th- it depends what the what the point of the story is. The there, there are many 
interesting uses of story the the you know the humorous element tall tales where the you know i'm i'm reminded of an excavator driver that i that i worked with on a few occasions um when i was younger and his way of um making a story meaningful to tell was to ensure that at some point in the story someone nearly died and the, it was yeah. everything it, either someone did die or nearly died in every single story he told and it was his every way of... story, the irony was <laughs> the irony was that about two days later um he dropped a tree on a pile of wood which rolled off and my dad was some distance away at the time but the tree moved off the pile of wood and hit dad in the leg and dad nearly died yeah exactly so and that's another story the excavator driver the excavator that couldn't use that he nearly died and had to had to tell that story in the form and i thought i'd killed him so so the the um (laughs) the the point i'm making is i wonder how much of the things we think of as history are actually only they're primarily valuable in our mind because of the of the story. So you think about the the history of the kings of England. So much of us have the history of the kings of England informed and fleshed out in its significance because William Shakespeare wrote plays about them. In other words, by telling them as stories, the history gained meaning. Mm. And conversely, mm. even when there's no stories present... And it's entirely what we describe or think of as factual history. We create stories out of it. So I, I, well, I think World War II is, is probably rife mm. with this. Mm. I've, I've probably heard it from your dad, Locke, about, and Cam, about the, uh, the sinking of the hood. Mm. You know? Um, and it, it takes on all of these sort of mythic proportions that, in reality, you know, a, a, a battleship got hit by an explosive and blew up and sank and a lot of people died and it was just a horrible tragedy. Yeah. Um, but there's all these myths and stories around it and it, it had it had a lot of meaning because people gave it meaning. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. um, can I jump in here with an Australian example? Um, this is from a book by John Clark, who died a few years ago, New Zealand Australian comedian, and it's a... a, a the even more complete book of Australian verse. And just to give you some sense, um, he begins this way, says, it's assumed that poetry came from England. Um, uh, but now we've found that many ma- famous poets are actually Australians. These poets include, um, I'm condensing here, um, uh, this, uh, Shagger Tennyson. Um, uh, they've all got a stumpy Byron VC. Um, <laughs> and... Fragments have been found recently around Stratford, uh, Stratford near Horsham of a work beginning, would there be any point in my drawing some sort of comparison between yourself and an absolute scorcher? Instead <laughs> um, <laughs> of shit I compare thee to a summer's day. but And they're all parodies of poems and they're, they're beautiful. But he does one on Ned Kelly, um, which is a great story of an Australian story. It has some historical basis. But as a cultural touch point, the, the significance we we give to that event far exceeds its impact on Australian history. Mm. Um, and that's actually, I'll, that's a good example. That's a... Yeah. I've got a, um, who killed Ned Kelly? This is the poem. Who killed uh, Ned Kelly? I said the hangman, the local sturm and drag man. I killed Ned Kelly. Who saw him die? I said Judge Barry, like the screeching of Larry, I saw him die. Um, and it goes through lots of verses. Um, uh, 
Who'll toll the bell? I said the editor, lest I'm thought a predator. I'll toll the bell. What had Ned done? Horse thief and murderer. Outlaw. Marauder. That's what he'd done. Hang on. That's BS. He was helping his mother. The cops shot his brother. He was deeply wronged. Who'll write the book? We! cried nearly everyone. By Friday we'll have several done. We'll write the book. Who'll buy the film rights? I! said a middleman. My name is Lonergan. I inherited the film rights. Who'll write the screenplay? The complexities bewildering. It should be done in Geraldry as, it's, as it is in heaven. Who'll do the marketing? I said Joe Byrne. It's my turn. I'll do the marketing. Um, all the birds of the air went to pieces and to jelly when they heard of the industry around poor Ned Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a very good illustration of, I, I think, uh, the point we're driving at was that we, we humans like stories. They speak to us in ways that that facts and figures don't. And when we don't have stories, we tend to make them up to help us explain, to help us understand things. Can I, can I share two, two responses to the discussion about uh, whether we need historicity uh, in order for meaning? Um, I've just finished reading a book by a wonderful short story writer called George Saunders um, called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. Um, in which he takes the readers through seven short stories by four Russian authors, uh, Chekhov, Turgenev, Tolstoy, Gogol. And uh, he talks about the role of fiction, at least as seen by the Russian authors, living in a different time, perhaps where things were assumed that are different to the world that we assume, uh, or the assumptions that are made in the world that we live in. Um, but one of the things he said was this. Um, Those authors seem to regard fiction not as something decorative, but as a vital moral ethical tool. They changed you when you read them, made the world seem to be telling a different, more interesting story, a story in which you might play a meaningful part and in which you had responsibilities. They asked the big questions. How are we supposed to be living down here? What will we put here to accomplish? What should we value? What is truth anyway? And how might we recognise it? How can we feel any peace when some people have everything and others have nothing? How are we supposed to live with joy in a world that seems to want us to love other people, but then roughly separates us from them in the end, no matter what? Um, and he said that reading fiction makes us more expansive, generous people and makes our lives more interesting. Um the part of the mind that reads a story is also the part that reads the world. It can deceive us, but it can also be trained to accuracy. It can fall into disuse and make us more susceptible to lazy, violent, materialistic forces. But it can also be urged back to life, transforming us into more active, curious, alert readers of reality. Oh, that was a very, those observations were very um, uh, keen observations of uh, the usefulness if indeed it must have some of fiction and I, and I I think that it's those sort of observations that led Jesus to tell stories as he told them mm-hmm. um, without uh, the necessity of uh, historical accuracy and indeed the need for historical accuracy uh, has been something that uh, is or this perceived need for historical accuracy is something that I think is somewhat surprising when 
we are said to be people of faith and we're looking for things that, and, and we, well, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Um, uh, now, that's not to say that we ought not have our faith grounded in material reality uh, and in historical accuracy. Um, but the truth, the truth that we are looking for uh, is a truth that extends far beyond that um, uh, to things that are not seen. Um, and I just... Uh, I I just wonder whether sometimes we place too much emphasis on historical accuracy and and whether or not truth is exhausted once you have found the facts mm -hmm. as they were. May not truth be something far beyond? It's a material worldview mindset, isn't it? It it really is. Yeah, and. And uh, it's also a mindset that would have been impossible had you lived in a time before extensive written records. Just so, so one thing that Daniel Reno said in the Bible as Lit subject I did at Avondale, which is a wonderful formative experience for me, um, he said it's not as if writers in ancient cultures thought that their myths were fictional or thought that their myths had actually happened. They never asked the question. Hmm. Because how do you know if something actually happened in a world without extensive, very extensive written records? Mm. Um, well, it, but Cameron, no. Look, I, I, I don't necessarily agree that about the distinction between uh, written records and oral testimony. Um, uh, uh, because, yeah, first but, of all, written <coughs> records can be inaccurate. Uh, just think of... Yeah. Well, I read it in the newspaper, therefore it must be true, <laughs> uh, without looking at the interests that might be behind yeah. it. Uh, and secondly, uh, indeed, uh, uh, documents are important uh, evidence, and, and often we yeah. will give uh, we will give significant weight to a contemporary yeah. document. Um, uh, but nonetheless, we the principal form of evidence in many courtrooms today still certainly in criminal cases, the cases with, one might think, the most uh, significant consequences attached to them uh, in terms of human liberty, uh, is oral evidence. Mm, yeah. uh, so we place great weight on, on what is said. Uh, and, and, and I think in a culture where uh, uh, the means of communication is limited to oral um, oral communication to passing on information is limited to oral. I think the human capacity to uh, uh, grasp uh, and understand and relay facts in that way is likely to be every bit as accurate as being able to record it in a document. And very interestingly, you know what oral traditions use as a vehicle for their recording of information? Because it's, it's much easier to remember, it sticks in the human brain and it conveys meaning very effectively. <laughs> is stories <laughs> and song. The point I was making, though, Ken, is that old cultures preserve stories that have utility. They don't mm. preserve them because they happened. And in a world with written records, you can go back and find archives of stuff 
which were written down for some purpose other than recording history, but they've been kept for some obscure mm. reason. And you can mm. retrospectively go back and sort of piece the story together. Um, mm. But it certainly, and this is the case with Aboriginal Dreamtime stories, you know, stories about the Aboriginal Dreamtime stories recorded events such as um, sea level rise, where the coast of Australia was was moving by up to 100 kilometres per year. And that would have had a massive impact. And there are stories that preserve this. So uh, the fact that it's an oral uh, tradition doesn't mean it's not historical, but it does mean it's preserved... It, they only preserved things that were useful in one sense. And this was a comment that you, you I think, referred to, to Luke, about utility of a storytelling. The important part about the Empress New Clothes as a story is not whether it did happen or whether it didn't happen. The important part of that story is that it is always happening. Mm. Mm. <laughs> how, how, many, yeah. how many times is there someone who's in charge, who's making a fool of themselves... They don't realise they're making a fool of themselves and no one's brave enough to tell them because they're in charge. So so that's that's the important part about that story. And and when you talk to students and they're trying to explain, or young people, and they're trying to explain an experience, uh, you will often hear, oh, it was just like in Call of Duty, a fictional computer game. It's just like on It's a real computer game. Yeah, it's a real computer game, but it's, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not an actual waltz. It's not. It's not. Yeah, it's fictionalized. The storyline involved is fictionalized. Or oh, it was just like in Lord of the Rings, or that was just like this. Or and and for older people, perhaps it's it's stories. I was trying to think of an example of a time where I consciously sort of referred to a story to help. Um, yeah, I, it's hard to think of one. I mean, but this is one of the. This is one of the values of stories: is that they're useful in, um, in a subtle way, uh, and I don't want to. I don't want to feel like at this point that we're taking a dig at history because, because there genuinely are some stories that I think are important because they happened, so or at least happened to some extent. So, for instance, and this is a feature of American politics more than Australian politics. Um, American politicians always refer to the formation of the states. And their and their constitution has, it's not just a legal document. It's there's a story about it, and there's a story about them kicking out the British and deciding to have a country based on principles, not on ethnic groups. And you know, the story might not hold water in the fine details because mm. because early Americans were just as racist as other people in lots of different ways, and they recruited large numbers of. Irish and um, Asians to build the railways under appalling conditions and all the rest of it. But but by and large, compared with the formation of other countries, it's true. The mm. American story is a bit of an anomaly. There, there is truth and there is some historical truth to the story and that becomes a real touchstone So for, for the American people. So I'm not saying that histories are less useful or that um, the only useful stories are fictional ones. Uh, what I'm calling into question is that the historicity, if you're trying to decide how to live your life and you are choosing a, a set of stories or locking into a set of stories to form your worldview, uh, I'm questioning about whether or not the historicity is the first question you'd, you'd ask. Uh, because we haven't, haven't even got up to the second sentence yet in the lesson. Um, <laughs> We're not but, doing well. Well, well Cam, just, just to answer your question, I, for my own part, entirely independent of anything else, 
uh, as, as much as I can make it my own view. Of course, our, our views are always informed by, by inputs that we've received. I have never once needed to know the historicity of, of anything very much in particular. Um, but particularly when it comes to faith, it simply does yeah. not matter. It does not change anything about what I believe or what I should do in my life or or, or yeah. what I know of the, the character of God. It just doesn't matter. Yeah, so if, God's, if God has, uh, and through the life of the church, I think it's, I'm comfortable saying that God's endorsed the set of stories contained in the Bible as a, I, many people have found them useful just at an empirical level. Let's mm. let's say we're happy to at least lock that in. Um, if God's endorsed a story that says, hey, a life where you cheat and steal is not a good life, mm. and you say, I'm going to take that story seriously, I'm going to really study it, and I'm going to care about it, I'm going to li- live my life by those principles. Uh, whether the particular characters in the story, you know, the, the historical part isn't 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 the most important part. I think you're right, Luke. Um, in in the functional sense, like what I mean is, when you're in the moral dilemma and you say, "How shall I act now?" and you think of the story, if you've decided to take the story seriously, mm. it's just as useful to you whether or not you think it's happened. I have thought of one story though, Luke. Um, one of the things that I have been thinking more about is, um, is you know, what what do I want my legacy to be? And and one of the most formative stories on this note is Leaf by Niggle, which you introduced us to, and which um, has such an interesting perspective. Everyone needs to go read, read Leaf by Niggle. Pause the, pause the podcast right now. Go and read it. It's not very long. Come back. It's an, it's an excellent reading of it on Audible. You can go and get an, an audio book, and it lasts for about 45 minutes. It's a great story. Welcome back. <laughs> yeah, welcome back, everyone. Um, Luke, I preached that I, I, I did a sermon where I did nothing except read that story. Mm. I just read the story, and at the end of the story, we said prayer, and uh, it was recorded. And I've had uh, one of the ladies in the church has told me she's got that recording. She listens to it frequently. <laughs> she she finds it just a real touch point, something that she goes back to often. And I think that illustrates the point we're trying to say. I have in front of me something I'll be very disappointed. Um, if I don't get to talk about it. So if, if you can humour me, um, I've got some C.S. Lewis. Um, oh, no C.S. Lewis on this podcast, Kevin. Oh, <laughs> Strictly okay. forbidden. Now, uh, I think he, I, I think Luke C.S. Lewis was a real person who actually existed. And based on the, that fact, it's the historicity of that I, fact. I personally have, have, no, have no evidence that that is definitely true. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I nonetheless accept it on authority. I'll accept you it on accept authority. The... Okay. This is the charge. Someone's written an essay that he's responding to, and um, the essay I'm reading from is called Myth Became Fact. It's Lewis's response. This other guy said, hey, religion is has some great moral teachings, but it's got all these supernatural and mythical elements in there, um, which I don't think sound reasonable to a modern rational person. Why can't you religious people just ditch the mysticism and keep the moral teachings, and you'll be better off for it? I mean, move with the times. And Lewis says, um, well, we all know where the times move, don't we? And he gives a long list of, of people who have been critis- critical of the essential Christian story. All a long list of movements that had their day and died out. And he said, the story, the myth that you're criticising has outlasted any of its critics and outlasted its supporters. So, so you're on shaky ground to start with. And then he says, um, but what happens if the story element... 
and perhaps even the what this other person was talking about, the mythical element, is the important part. Uh, he quotes uh, Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice. Uh, Would not conversation be more rational than dancing, says one of the characters, uh, uh, Miss Bingley. And uh, Mr Bingley replies, it would be much more rational, but much less like a ball, because they're at a dance. And one of them is saying, well, let's do less dancing and have more conversation. <laughs> well, yes, he could. But it's, it's less like the thing you're trying to do. So what is the thing you're trying to do when you tell a story? And this is such a succinct summary. Um, and I'm going to read this section. Human intellect is incurably abstract. The only realities we experience are concrete. This pain, this pleasure, this dog, this man. While we are not, oh, sorry, while we are loving the man, bearing the pain, enjoying the pleasure, we are not intellectually apprehending pleasure with a capital P, pain or personality as abstract ideas. When we begin to do so, on the other hand, the concrete realities sink to the level of mere examples. We are no longer dealing with them, but with what they exemplify. This is our dilemma. Either to taste and not to know, or to know and not to taste. Or more strictly, to lack one kind of knowledge because we are in an experience, or to lack another kind because we are outside the experience. As thinkers, we're cut off from what we think about. As tasting, touching, willing, loving, hating, we do not clearly understand. The more lucidly we think, the more we're cut off. The more deeply we enter into reality, the less we can think. You cannot study pleasure in the moment of the nuptial embrace, nor repentance while repenting, nor analyse the nature of humour while roaring with laughter. But when else do you really know these things? If only my toothache would stop, I could write another chapter about pain. <laughs> but once it stops, what do I know about pain? Of this tragic dilemma, myth is a partial solution. And we use the term myth to mean a story which didn't happen. That's not the sense in which Lewis uses it. The story, a myth is, is a story that you tell for the insight it brings. Mm. It may or may not happen. Yes, it may or may not have happened. It may have happened in part. It may have happened in yeah. full. It may not have happened at all. Again, it may be something that happens the all the time. Thing. It may be mm. happening all the time, and you're just telling an exemplar of it. You know, so it that's, may be that's it may be something that must never, under any circumstances, be allowed to happen. Sorry, I'll let yeah. you continue. Yeah. <laughs> In the enjoyment of a great myth, we come nearest to experiencing as a concrete what we can otherwise only understand as an abstraction. At this moment, for example, I'm trying to understand something very abstract indeed. This idea that um, the fading, vanishing, tasted reality. Um, disappears as we try to grasp it. When you try to think about love, you're not in the moment of being in love, and when you're in love, you're not thinking about it. There's that sort of conflict. This is a very difficult idea to understand. Probably I've made a bad weather of explaining it. But if I remind you instead of Orpheus and Eurydice, now this is a Greek le legend, Eurydice and Orpheus, Orpheus in love, Orpheus, Eurydice dies and goes to the underworld, Orpheus, who was the one who made such magical music, was allowed to go down and take her out of the underworld and he, he had to lead her by the hand but he couldn't look at her and um, when he turned to look at her she disappeared and Lewis said that's exactly what I'm trying to say you can lead it by the hand you can have the touch but the minute you try and look at it it disappears you can be in love but being in love is not the same as thinking about being in love you may reply that you never tell this moment attached that meaning to that myth of course not you are not looking for an abstract meaning at all. If that is what you are doing, the myth would be for you no true myth, myth but a mere allegory. You are not knowing but tasting. And what you are tasting turns out to be a universal 
a universal principle. The moment we state this principle, we are admittedly back in the world of abstraction. It's only while receiving the myth as a story that you can experience the principle concretely. Hmm. I've probably said it before, and I think we have on this podcast even, but I think C.S. Lewis was a very clear thinker. Yeah, and this is, this is, I think, really pertinent to our discussion. And he makes this claim near the end of the essay. A man who disbelieved the Christian story as fact, but continually fed on it as myth, would perhaps be more spiritual alive than one who assented and didn't think much about it. <laughs> and this is what James says. Oh, you believe in God. That's great. The devils believe in God. Well done. Uh, so you believe it happened. That's good. Yeah, well, how often do you think about it? How often in your life do you turn to Genesis and say, ah, oh, how is this going to help me now, right now? Because if if the only comfort you draw from the story is that it happened, but you, you don't actually use it for any purpose, then I, I'm not interested in your historicity. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think just in the last few minutes, that actually leads really gently and directly into an idea that I was wondering whether I would bring up. Um what what do we do? What does Genesis, if we do dwell on it, what does it call us to do? One of the things that startles me a little bit is that as a faith community that places a considerable emphasis on these opening chapters of Genesis, partly because of their connection to Sabbath, which is something that the Adventist Church values, it surprises me how infrequently we as Adventists genuinely ponder and and dwell on the idea of creation you know it's it's called good and in the new testament it's not described i don't think as being a disposable house of cards that's just housing us while we undertake the test Uh, you know creation is dynamic It, it groans it yearns for restoration just like humanity yearns for restoration and revelation and the new testament writings point towards a restoration of creation rather than an eradication of creation. And yet I think even though we've, as Adventists, we've really stuck into this idea of, you know, humans being an embodied soul. We don't we don't really buy into the soul popping its way up to heaven after death. And we wage rhetorical battles about this frequently. We we have consented to the souls going up to heaven picture of the rest of the created world more often than not i contest um we're more we're more willing in general to see oh well, yeah but you know i was actually chatting to a pastor once who literally said oh yeah but i believe all this all of the the created world will be destroyed by fire and i thought to myself that there's a verse he's using to, to get there but that's a pretty stark picture of the world and it certainly yeah. plays out in the way you interact with with the creation yeah And you can deny it all you like. Sorry, Cam, I'm going to say this. You can deny that your apocalyptic end-time view affects how you care for the world that you live in now all you like, but it must. Uh, It cannot but affect your view of the importance of this world if you consider uh, that creation was something to be taken care of uh, and nurtured uh, and uh, of value that requires that of you, uh, or it is something uh, that is uh, unworthy 
disposable and to be destroyed uh, uh, once the real thing comes along. Mm. It, it cannot but affect the way that you deal with this world. And, 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 and you can't, you can pretend all you like otherwise, but you will be well, deluding yourself. I, I have a suggestion, Ken, uh, for anybody who mm. finds themselves being affected in the way you described, um, because I think it's a useful comparison to make. Um, and that is simply to consider that everybody that we know and love is at some point going to die. Does that mean, therefore, Ooh. that it is not worth caring about them and looking after them now? You, mm. you took the words out of my mouth, Luke. I, <laughs> I started with, with my kids, and I thought, that's the podcast listeners aren't going to like that analogy. And then I moved to my dog, and then I thought, no, they're not going to like that either. And I eventually got to my car. I was <laughs> going to say that it, I, I know for certain that my car is one day going to get wrecked, so I'm going to stop servicing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, even just a subtle little one, you know, for us, so to me, one of the things that the creation narrative talks about is the idea, you know, there's a, there's a forming, the lesson even touched on it, and, and I think was had some good comments to make. There's the forming, when, when Adam is formed, there's the forming from the dust and the breathing of the spirit. And, and there's similar sorts of physical forming that take place in the second creation narrative in Genesis 2. So if we, and, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that is part of the, the picture that we get from the Bible that informs our traditional Adventist perspective on the connectedness of embodied spirit and embodied soul that, that informs the way we picture what happens <laughs> to, to people when they die. But if that's, so, so what's remarkable is, the New Testament speaks of our home being the new Jerusalem, which comes to the renewed earth. And yet you will catch on any given Sabbath at any Adventist church meeting, you will catch people speaking about going to heaven day in, day out, you know, and spending eternity in heaven. The Bible doesn't speak of us spending eternity in heaven. The Bible speaks of us spending eternity in the created world. That's what it speaks of. And it's remarkable. It's remarkable when you stop to think about it, the way that we just we just sweep this idea aside and we refuse yeah. to engage with it. Um, and we and we flip we flip quickly from being staunchly Adventist when we're talking about state of the dead and souls and they don't go up to heaven and it's sleep. But then we we recant most of that and we just fall neatly in line with conventional historical, broad mainstream pr Protestant Christianity. Um and talk about, and we sing songs, you know, about about spending eternity in heaven. This this utmost emphasis on on heaven as being our destination, when the Bible speaks of earth as being our final destination. Yeah, you, you said something before, Locke, about how you you find it strange that Seventh Day Adventists care about Genesis but don't read the stewardship message mm. out of it. I don't think it's that strange if you consider that Seventh-day Adventists overwhelmingly care about Genesis because of what it says about the Sabbath. It's not It's not the other way around. We, we as Seventh-day Adventists don't care about the Sabbath because, um, because of what Genesis says. Ah, we care okay. about Genesis because of what we believe about the Sabbath. So we don't care about Genesis because of anything else in right. Genesis. Right. So we don't read those messages. As long as we've got what we want out of it. Mm. Um, which is a trap that's in front of all of us when it comes to reading the Bible. Yeah. We have to be fair. Yeah. 
as soon as we got what we want out of it, we don't need to look at the other parts of it. Um, can I? But I would say, I, give an example, I would say, Luke? yeah. One second. Last thought. I would say that yeah. the message about the Sabbath and about the stewardship of creation are both present in Genesis. Um, if I can give a couple of examples, uh, negative first and then positive, where people look, read Genesis, have read Genesis, and it's been useful to them. I mean, this is the real challenge when we read the Bible, is to say, all right, well, this is meant to change the way I live. Uh, one of them was Queen Victoria, I think it was, who was giving birth and had with her a doctor and a, a priest, a, a bishop or someone, an ecclesiastical member. And um, uh, the the bishop was saying that she ought not be given painkillers during childbirth because it's stated in Genesis that in great pain hmm. um, women will give birth to children. And the doctor was suggesting that she could benefit from some painkillers. And uh, she looked at um, the bishop and said, I'm having the baby and I'll be having the painkillers, which I think is a very insightful response. Um, of course, <clears throat> the same bishop was not advocating that men should stop using tractors because we're talking industrial revolution now. And it also says that in great pain and toil, men will, will farm for food. So there seems to be a sort of a wishful selection there. Mm. And, and you know, so it's not it, just because it's a good story doesn't mean you'll read the right thing out of it. That's a real, that's a real warning for anyone who has, mm. you know, it says it in the Bible, so I'll do it. There's so many ways that can backfire. Um, a better one is this idea that um, humankind's made in God's image. In God's image, it's significant that the Jewish religious tradition storytelling begins not with the creation of the Jewish people, but with the creation of people, and they all have God's image. Mm. All of them, even the non-Jewish people, and that is a that's a different worldview. That's, that fundamentally says at the basic level there isn't a them and us. Mm. And Lewis picks up on this where Lewis says in The Weight of Glory that next to the sacrament, the bread and wine, uh, the holiest object presented to your senses are the people around you. Hmm. They, are, they are the holiest, they bear the image of God. And um, Christ picks up on this when he's asked a practical question. Who, what do you say? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, well, show me a coin. And they show him a coin. He says, well, whose picture's on it? Whose image is on this coin? Hmm. And they say, oh, it's Caesar's image. And Christ says, oh, well, give to Caesar what's, what's his and give to God what is his. <laughs> yeah. And what bears, what bears God's image? It's you. Um, and, and so Jesus appeals to this paradigm when he's faced with a real practical decision. Um, uh, while we're talking about paradigms, I think more or less where we're, we've been moving towards and I'm eyeing the clock. Um, I saw a cartoon this week um, about false dichotomies. And it's a the cartoon depicting a conversation in which one person says, uh, yes, yes, no, but you can't say that because that's a false dichotomy. And the other person says, uh, but you have to embrace false dichotomies because the only alternative is cannibalism. <laughs> which, is, which is very good that's so good i have a, i have a proposal you've you've already alluded to the time and we do need to finish could i read a few verses at the end of genesis chapter one we've yeah. talked about them let's read them out and they form i think 
um, a fairly strong idea that we can leave in the minds of the listeners. Well, well, yes, do that, Locke. I'll just uh, identify, I think, one false dichotomy we've fallen into a church is that stories divide between historical stories and useless stories. Hmm. The thing has no meaning unless it's historical. That's a dichotomy. That like All stories can be divided into the ones that happened uh, and the ones that we don't have to worry about, that are irrelevant, that we can dismiss. Um, and I don't think that's true. There are other dichotomies related to creation that we've talked about in previous episodes. The dichotomy between intentional design and chaotic mechanism is not actually a dichotomy. You can you can be very intentional in the way something happens and still employ chaotic mechanisms. We can link to that, I think, in mm. the in the description notes. But mm. uh, yes, Locke, we're long overdue for closing thoughts. Can you can you give us something to yeah. that's actionable? Well it is. I believe that it's actionable and I'm only going to quote from the words of Genesis. And I'd like as you're listening to this, just ponder what you think it might be meaning if you were to dwell on it and how you might wish to respond to it. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. Mm, that's good. Well, uh, thank you everyone for listening uh, to our discussion. As always, if you feel the need to um, bring us back to the straight and narrow, or provide an extra thought that you can chip in, um, or a reflection, uh, then you can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Please feel free to share the, the link of this podcast uh, for this podcast to anyone you think would find it useful. And uh, please join us again next week. Mm-hmm.